The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Are you building a renewable power plant? Looking for a battery storage system? Thinking about how to integrate renewables onto your grid? Hitachi ABB Power Grids is your choice. Meet your goals, unlock new revenue streams, maximize renewable integration, lower carbon emissions. All with Power Grids innovative control and automation technology. For more, visit the link right there in the show notes. The Interchange is also brought to you by Long E Solar, the world's leading solar technology company. Long E supplies high-efficiency monocrystalline solar modules to all market segments and project types in the U.S. A global market leader, Long E has unmatched bankability, quality, and performance validated by third-party laboratories and has a breakthrough innovation at both the wafer and module level. With Long E products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. You know, today fertilizer is made in, in huge factories that use fossil fuels thousands of miles away from the farmer, and the farmer just gets a tank of the cheapest type of nitrogen. You know, what, what we're pushing towards is, is a product that's an extension of the farm. And just like pumping water out of the ground, you have your nitrogen generator attached to, to the irrigation pump. This week, lightning in a bottle, producing nitrogen fertilizer using only air, water, and electricity. This is The Interchange. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded in 1918 to a German man named Fritz Haber for a process to fix nitrogen from the air. The technique, which later became known as the Haber-Bosch process, is probably one of the four or five most important inventions of the last 150 years, because nitrogen feeds crops. And as our population boomed during the 20th century, nitrogen fertilizer became the core fuel of our food system. It's estimated to currently feed about half of the world's population. As an aside, as I was looking into this, I learned Fritz Haber then went on to spend his next five years trying and failing to extract gold from seawater, which is actually a fascinating story. Did you know that the amount of gold in seawater would reach $150 quadrillion at today's gold prices? Anyway, that's an aside. Back to the point. Nitrogen fertilizer is incredibly important. And we still produce the vast majority of our fertilizer using this same process that was invented over a century ago. This has all sorts of ramifications that are less than ideal for farmers and for crops. But in addition to that, it has also become a major source of global greenhouse gas emissions to the tune of around 5% of global emissions when you include both the production and application of that nitrogen fertilizer. So it's both a big climate issue and a big agriculture issue. Fortunately, there are a number of really exciting innovations at work to reduce or in some cases eliminate these emissions while improving farmers' livelihoods. One that I personally have grown particularly excited about comes from an early stage startup called Nitricity, where we at EIP recently led the seed round. Nitricity has a unique technology to produce nitrogen fertilizer at point of use using only air, water, and electricity. So I had a great chat with Nico Pinkowski, who is Nitricity's CEO and co-founder, about the broader world of nitrogen fertilizer and how he's trying to capture lightning in a bottle to let farmers take control of this key resource. With no further ado, my conversation with Nico. 
Nico, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to have you here to talk about fertilizer. So let's jump in and start with a high-level tour. So give us an overview of the fertilizer market as it stands today. Sure thing. So the you know fertilizer today largely defines um, three major farm inputs. You have nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, and potassium, as well as a variety of other uh, micronutrients in addition to those three macronutrients. Um, you know, by far the most important is uh, the first, the nutrient nitrogen, which is extremely important in supporting our global food system. And, uh, you know, there's a study by MIT that says without, uh, without the production of, of these nitrogen fertilizers, you could only support about 3 billion people on, on Earth. And so uh, this marketplace is uh, commensurately huge. So it's, it's, it's over $100 billion if you include the distribution costs uh, just for nitrogen fertilizer. It's, it's composed of you know, several hundred uh, very large factories. Uh, sometimes these large ones are called world-scale factories that uh, produce a chemical known as ammonia, which uh, uh, is today and has been for the past 120 years the feedstock to almost every single other type of nitrogen fertilizer. Uh, it, it, fertilizer starts at these factories and then has to get uh, from, from only a few hundred factories to you know, multiple billions of acres of farmland. And so it's, a, it's extremely complex. Oftentimes it's hazardous to ship it and uh, it's costly. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, a farmer gets a tank of fertilizer or a bag of solid fertilizer on um, his or her farm. Yeah, that's one of the things that as I learned more about this, I, I realized that I just had never reckoned with, which is the fact that, in fact, a lot of our fertilizer that we use on farms, even here in the United States, even in pretty heavy agriculture territories, is actually imported. Like the fertilizer it itself is produced very far away. You've given some examples, I think, of like where the fertilizer for, for farms in Central Valley, California comes from. Google Maps is, is a great way to show this. Uh, you know, there's a particular place in California uh, where you can zoom in and you can see high density of uh, agriculture. And uh, you have to zoom out almost to the other side of the world to see where the fertilizer came from. It comes from, uh, you know, oftentimes Canada, uh, China, or Trinidad and Tobago uh, is providing a California fertilizer. So before we get into why this is an odd market structure and why there are a bunch of problems with it, why is it this way? Why is it that almost all of our fertilizer comes from ammonia feedstock? And why is it that ammonia is produced at like 300 some facilities around the world? How did we end up in this place? It's an interesting question. Uh, in, in my opinion, it's because we, you know, the process that we use to make ammonia is extremely energy intensive. And so it's, it's co-located today with uh, where the lowest cost fossil fuels are. So where the lowest cost natural gas is and where the lowest cost coal is. And uh, in addition to, to needing a lot of energy from these resources, you, you need high temperatures and high pressures uh, in, the, in the chemical process that makes it today, which means uh, you just want to make your factory as big as possible um, for, for that to make sense on paper. All right. So we end up with this supply chain where we have a few hundred Haber-Bosch facilities. They produce a ridiculous amount of ammonia. We then take that ammonia and either ship it around as ammonia or ship it around as derivatives of ammonia that ultimately makes it into farmers' hands. 
Let's talk about some of the impacts then that that market structure and that particular form of nitrogen fertilizer has on farmers. What do you see as being some of the bigger problems that that creates? So the the whole model is focused on the factories and how to ship it easily, uh, rather than focusing it on the on the on the fields and what's best for farmers to grow uh, crops and to focus on plant health. And so you know, in, in my opinion, the the marketplace is a little backwards in terms of you know what we're optimizing today. And uh, you know, one example is that the most commonly available nitrogen fertilizer form on Earth is a, an ammonia based form. Ammonium fertilizers, and, and that's uh, because they're they're very easy to ship. Because uh, out of every one pound of fertilizer you ship, you you have a high m- mass fraction of nitrogen, and and many times those are not the best for the soil. Uh, for example, if your field is is non-flooded, uh, you, you may want to think about using a different type of fertilizer. So what you're saying is that you know if you were to design the ideal fertilizer formulation for a given farm. Oftentimes, it might not be ammonium nitrate, but many farms get ammonium nitrate anyway because it is the cheapest. Is that right? That's right. So there's sort of an imprecision problem there. Um, what about prices? You know, farm, farms are notoriously low margin. Um, how do fertilizer prices affect them and how big a deal is that for their ultimate economics? So, you know, the what farmer pays for a pound of nitrogen versus the cost of a pound of nitrogen coming out of a factory is, is vastly different. It's, it's, you know, two to as high as five times different in price. Uh, the, these factories are so big and they're so focused on cost and they're using such low cost natural gas um, that the price for every ton of fertilizer coming out is extremely low. Um, whereas the farmer is oftentimes, uh, you know, three to as many as you know, five steps in the supply chain away from the factories. And uh, the, the farmer is seeing very volatile costs, and the farmer is seeing costs that are much, much higher. Uh, so, for example, in California today, you know, a low cost of nitrogen is about 50 cents a pound, whereas coming out of the factory, you could get it, you know, for 15 cents or less. And then what about shipping ammonia around? I mean, there have been these, like, high-profile um, explosions, the big explosion in Beirut last year, I believe, was ammonium nitrate. Um, that that folks may remember from the news. I mean, it's it's a it's in some ways it's sort of surprising that we ended up shipping so much of this stuff around the world, given that it is explosive, right? So, what does that mean in terms of the supply chain and the costs and what has to be done in order for us to ship all this explosive material around the world? So, the current model favors shipping the most concentrated form of nitrogen from a factory to his farm. And so for every, you know, 1,000 pounds you move, you want to have that be mostly nitrogen. And so sometimes we throw safety to the wayside and we're shipping the highest mass fractional percent of nitrogen without consideration of what's the safest form of nitrogen and, and what's the safest way to get it from A to B. And so Beirut was a, was a terrifying example of ammonium nitrate shipping. And so we're shipping a high mass fraction of nitrogen, uh, one that uh, can explode readily and is, is very hazardous, and you can see that. And, uh, you know, this is because of, of margins. You know, folks were going after the best margins and the lowest cost of fertilizer to ship, um, but definitely not uh, what's, what's best for the soil or uh, what has the lowest hazard to human health um, to get it to a farm. And so this is an example of where a high, high concentration fertilizer was shipped because of cost economics, 
but ultimately, you know, there was, there was a, a dire price to be paid because of that decision. You've spent a lot of time, I know, over the past, I don't know, five plus years with farmers, talking to farmers. I know they, they're not monolithic, but what is, what is your impression of how farmers think about fertilizer? Like, does, do all these things that we're describing, all these challenges, is it like a pain in their side at all, all the time? And they're like, oh, the fertilizer, if I could just make this easier. Or are they just so used to it because this is just how it's always been that they don't even think about alternatives? Fertilizer has been the same way for a long time. And so, you know, oftentimes you know, farmers don't talk about the pain points of fertilizer. You know, where the pain points come in are with new government regulations on, on nitrate, saying, you know, they have to do more reporting requirements. And, uh, you know, I've stayed with farmers in Central Valley, California, and they, they'll talk about how, you know, a farmer will sometimes work with his wife to do government reporting on nitrogen over the weekends because there's not enough time during, during the work week. And, uh, and so that, that's a particular pain point is tracking and, and uh, increasing uh, state and federal regulations to track nitrogen usage. Um, but for the farmer's point of view, they call their supplier. Their, their supplier um, will provide them a tank as well as plenty of fees to deliver it and, and, and keep it there. And then, you know, the, the farm manager sends out a, a worker and, uh, and uh, they'll inject that tank into their, to their irrigation set in California or they'll have to rent an, a, a type of equipment known as the bar in the American Midwest, and they'll roll a, a, an actual tank of anhydrous ammonia, spewing ammonia into the ground, into the soil. Uh, they'll, they'll roll that across their plot, and it'll knife in uh, the nutrient into the, into the soil. All right, so let's get to the reason that I think both you and I care about the fertilizer market, apart from, as you said, the fact that it feeds 3 billion plus people and is one of the most important inventions of the past 150 years. But the reason that, that, that you and I spend time on it is the climate impact thereof. So there's sort of two different ways in which nitrogen fertilizer has a significant impact on climate change right now. One is in the production of it, and then the other is the application of it. So let's start with the production side. Where do those emissions come from and how big are they? So the production of a, a fertilizer today, mainly uh, ammonia-based fertilizer today, um, requires a coal or natural gas as an input. And so these, pl- these factories, they're known as Haber-Bosch factories. They, uh, they'll take as an input natural gas, for example, which is a hydrocarbon. They'll pull the hydrogen off and send the carbon out the smokestacks. And then they'll, they'll use the hydrogen to make uh, ammonia, and then they'll, they'll deliver and ship that. And just that, just that initial formation process, uh, depending on the process, depending on the type of factory, well, for every one pound of nitrogen uh, it produces, uh, it'll it'll send uh, two to four pounds of carbon dioxide into the sky, um, purely based on stoichiometry. That does not include greenhouse gases that often come from these factories in the form of methane emissions. If you have a leaking natural gas pipeline, um, or nitrous oxide emissions if your process is not optimized. So as an aside, this is why there's a lot of focus on, uh, you know, cleaning up the hydrogen supply or like one other alternative method to decarbonize that portion is, you know, produce your, uh, your ammonia with zero carbon hydrogen rather than with natural gas, which is why people talk about using uh, green hydrogen or turquoise hydrogen or blue hydrogen or whatever color you want for that, which has its own economic challenges, obviously. Um, but then independent of that, so you produce your you produce your ammonia and then you ship it 
all over the world. There's shipping emissions associated with that as well, but then you apply it to crops. And there you have uh, another and perhaps even larger emissions impact that, that once I started to learn about, I realized actually I think it's like the most underappreciated source of greenhouse gas emissions perhaps in the world. Can you run through what that looks like? Yes, sir. It's a big problem. And so, you know, the first step that I just talked about are, are these factories. And if you, if you combine all of the emissions out of these factories, it's estimated that that contributes just from the production about 1.6% to total global greenhouse gas emissions. But, you know, th- that we're just getting started. So the next step is distribution. So you're shipping uh, this process, not looking at the hazards or the waste, because you'll simply lose fertilizer as it, you know, about 1% just falls off the truck. And uh, the trucking and the, and the, and the freight uh, has a lot of emissions associated with it. But once that fertilizer gets to the end user, we're, we're, sh- we're, we're sending farmers types of fertilizer that are, that are good for shipping but bad for soils. And so there's a type of greenhouse gas emission called nitrous oxide. Now, nitric o- oxide emissions, uh, it's estimated can contribute up to 5% to total global greenhouse gas emissions uh, from soil from soil-based nitrous oxide emissions. And that's the upper bound estimate provided by the World Bank. And so you have 1.6% of total global greenhouse gas emissions coming from these factories and much more coming from uh, field-based nitrous oxide emissions from when you apply fertilizer. And it's a very, and I'd love to get into to why and how that, that happens in the soil. It's a very complex thing, but ultimately uh, the type of fertilizer you apply has a strong influence on the amount of emissions, as well as your application strategy. Yeah, well, this is a podcast where we like to get into the weeds, or I guess in this case, into the soil. So let's go a level deeper there. Um, talk about how the type of fertilizer applied and the mechanism of application impacts the amount of nitrous oxide emissions. So there's there's two types, uh, you know, for the most part, there's, there's two types of nitrogen in the world. And uh, there, there's ammonium, ions and there's nitrate ions. You have NH4 plus as one type of fertilizer and another is NO3 minus nitrate. And there's a you know there's more like urea and, and types like that. But those are the predominant types that are applied to soils. And so uh, today we're applying as a, as a society mostly ammonium based fertilizers. And so that's the ion that's being put into the soil. And what happens is um, plants uh, how do they absorb nitrogen? They absorb uh, a little bit of ammonia, um, but uh, largely, you know, plants have evolved to, to absorb nitrate ions. And this is, this is very complex and a function of the, the type of soil you're growing in, the pH and the water and oxygen levels in the soil. Um, but for the most part, for, for, for fields that are not underwater, which is the vast majority of global farmland, uh, plants will, will take up more nitrate than they take ammonia. So plants are, are, are absorbing one type of nitrogen a little bit more than the other. But, you know, the soil ecosystem has evolved as such that uh, you can apply either type of fertilizer to the soil, and soil microbes will, will convert it uh, back and forth. And so uh, there's two types of pathways. There, there's a pathway if you put down ammonium ions, it'll, the soil microbes will oxidize those and convert them to nitrate ions. Uh, and there's another pathway. If you put down nitrate ions, soil microbes will 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 um, convert those to nitrogen gas sometimes, um, or to greenhouse gas emissions. 
But uh, one of the key sources of nitrous oxide emissions, which is again contributing up to 5% to total greenhouse gas emissions, is from the improper application of the wrong type of fertilizer, the wrong ion, and the wrong soil. And of course, the you know overdosing, putting, putting too much fertilizer in the soil at, at once. And so it's really important, and there's, there's a variety of studies that are only now just starting to, to, to regrain, regain traction, is to apply the right form at, at lower concentrations and higher frequencies. Right. So it, this is, it's a multifaceted challenge with a multifaceted set of solutions. But if I understand it right, um, just to rehash what you said, I guess, the first thing you can do is make sure you're applying the right kind of fertilizer to the soil, the, the fertilizer that that soil needs. And that sort of gets back to the point that we were talking about before of you know, different farms with different soils and different crops are going to need different fertilizers. But for the most part, it's actually kind of difficult to tailor your fertilizer without, you know, incurring significant cost right now because of this centralized supply chain. But you could do that to to mitigate emissions. And then the second thing you could do is apply it better, apply less of it, apply it more precisely, uh, apply it at the right times. And there's a whole suite of strategies around how to do that as well. Is that about right? Spot on. All right. So this is why we really care about this, right? This is a significant, like 6% of global greenhouse gas emissions is no small amount. Uh, it, it contributes more than who knows, like, you know, probably a good chunk of passenger vehicles in the world. Um, and you've spent the last number of years with a team building out a unique solution to this that basically like turns the fertilizer supply chain on its head. So why don't you start by giving the overview of nitricity? What is it that you are trying to do? So, you know, we, we are nitricity and we, you know, we, we were founded by a group of uh, nitrogen fertilizer enthusiasts, so to speak. And there's only so many of those in the, in the world. The, uh, you know, good, someone close to me once describes, uh, describes fertilizer entrepreneurs as entrepreneurs at, uh, the uh, you know there's a group of us as as PhD students, uh, while at Stanford, uh, you know in our free time we were really excited about uh, decarbonizing fertilizer production, and we started looking into different technologies through the course of classes, and uh, building technologies in our backyard uh, as far back as 2017, and uh, you know at first like like most folks in the world we looked at ammonia, because today nitrogen fertilizer is synonymous with ammonia. And we looked at uh, many different types of technologies out there in the world. But we had a breaking point once we actually got onto farms in California, Central Valley, uh, more. And we started working backwards from the farmer to the, to the technology. And so um, there's two types of fertilizers you can apply in the world. And when in talking to farmers, nitrate-based and ammonium-based uh, are effective. And we're one of the few nitrate-based fertilizer companies in the world. Uh, and we had that by, by looking at the soils and working on farms uh, kind of backwards in the problem. And so that that is one distinction between you and the majority of the market is that you're making nitrate-based fertilizer, not ammonia. But I would say it's actually maybe not the biggest difference. The biggest difference is the method of production uh, and what that means in terms of where you might produce it and how it affects the supply chain. So Talk a little bit about the nitricity system and how it changes the fertilizer 
market? Sure. So in, in April 2020, we installed a, a, an array of solar panels on a, on a farm in California, Central Valley. It's about the size of an F-150 pickup truck. And underneath these panels, we, we put down two 55-gallon drums. Um, and inside of one of them uh, was a type of reactor that simulates lightning. And essentially, we like to say lightning in a bottle. And the other is you know, a set of controls and, and gas pumps and, what, and whatnot to help us capture the fertilizer. And so we, we connected our hardware directly to the solar panels. And uh, you know, every morning when the sun crests the horizon, the system would turn on and start producing fertilizer uh, using you know, a process very similar to lightning. And then in the evening when the sun goes down, the system would turn off. And uh, you know, we, we, we had it running and, and producing fertilizer. Uh, directly on the farm. Uh, the, the, the kicker was that by being on the farm, we directly connected it with the irrigation system. And so we, we built a, an extension of existing farm hardware, an extension of an of a irrigation water pump that can now use solar electricity, air, and water. And every time water is flowing to the field, it can, it can uh, inject what we believe was a, was a perfect concentration of fertilizer. And, uh, and we, we did this uh, over, it was a bit of a grueling summer to get the technology working. You know, there's many nights we spent uh, underneath those solar panels trying to fix it or in the dirt, you know. Uh, uh, but uh, that, was, uh, that was kind of the, the kickoff to where we are uh, today, which is building much bigger systems on much larger farms. I also want to point out that the reason you were trying to fix it at nighttime under those solar panels is that this is Central Valley, California, like Fresno area, where... As I have experienced, it hits like 120 degrees during the day. So these were harsh conditions you were trying to test your system in, to say the least. That's correct. Nothing spurs innovation better than a 110-degree desert trying to build fertilizer technologies under the shade of solar panels. The Interchange is brought to you by Hitachi ABB Power Grids. Energy resilience is important everywhere. Yet imagine living near the Arctic Circle. Reliable power makes daily life possible, and Hitachi ABB Power Grid's battery energy storage system prevents power outages for communities outside Fairbanks. In fact, the innovative system holds the Guinness record for the world's most powerful battery. No matter where you are, energy storage can improve resilience and efficiency, offer greater user availability with smart grid technology, integrate solar or wind to reach your sustainability goals, lower electricity bills by reducing load and peak shaving. It's all achievable with energy storage solutions. Learn more about stacking value with energy storage solutions through ABB Power Grids. Follow the link right there in the show notes. We are also brought to you by Longy. Longy is the world's most valuable solar company with a market capitalization of $8.4 billion. It supplies more than 80 gigawatts of solar wafers and modules worldwide each year, about a quarter of global market demand. Longy's modules lead in efficiency and are validated through rigorous testing at leading independent labs and has multiple top awards from testing agencies. With sustainability front and center, Longy partners with the Climate Group and other sustainability leaders pledging to be 100% powered by renewables by 2028. With Longy products, customers can be sure they're getting technologically advanced, best-in-class solar technology. So... This is, I mean, it's, it's like hard to overstate if you, if you could do this at scale, how disruptive it is to this fertilizer market, because all the things that we just described at the beginning, how the fertilizer market works today, almost none of them would be true in a nitricity paradigm, 
right? The centralized nature goes away because you're pre- you could produce on farm. You can literally produce for a given field. Um, it could be super small scale, which cuts out that whole supply chain. No more shipping uh, and storage, no more, you know, dangerous explosive material, all that kind of stuff. But it also has implications for the uh, precision and specific tailoring that a given farm or a given field can can do, right? To the point that you made before about the formulation of fertilizer that we've had before, ammonia, which is great to ship around because it's high nitrogen content, but not so great uh, for the individual field. This sort of changes that story a bit. Can you talk a little bit about what what it means um, to produce on farm and how that imp- impacts a farmer's ability to tailor fertilizer to their own needs? That's that's a perfect point, and and this is part of the reason what drove our team to to work you know day in day out on, on a desert is it's such an exciting future, you know today fertilizer is made in in huge factories that use fossil fuels thousands of miles away from the farmer and the farmer just gets a tank of the cheapest type of nitrogen, and it's it it doesn't care about the the fields you know what what we're pushing towards is is a product that's an extension of the farm. And it's tailored towards the fields that it's to fertilize. And so you, you can imagine uh, a farm system, an irrigation system, for example, that uh, uses air, water, and electricity that's available. And just like pumping water out of the ground, you have your nitrogen generator attached to, to the irrigation pump. And, and farmers can, you know, can sit back and, and, and choose when and how frequently and how much nitrogen they want to apply. And uh, it, it can be done at high frequency in low concentrations of, ni- of nitrogen to reduce runoff, to, to reduce uh, harmful emissions, nitrous oxide emissions from fields by, by permitting a type of nitrogen that, that soils prefer. And, uh, and, and, you know, of course, it's totally carbon-free because you're not using any fossil fuels because you can't get them there. And so if you can execute on the product, you can imagine such an exciting future where, you know, every farm in, in say, a community in California it doesn't have trucks of chemicals being shipped around for fertilizer. It has it just has farm systems that are fertilizing themselves, and you can control it and and really optimize it. It could help with a lot of the reporting burdens because these systems know how much they produce and inject. It can of course help with the emissions burdens, and the big one is safety. Is you no longer have to ship around hazardous chemicals that can that can explode or tip off trucks, um, or that are extremely concentrated. Uh, you can produce them much more dilute. And inject them straight, and so you know these are some of the reasons we're excited about this. And uh, if we if we execute on a product like I believe we will, uh, it, it's such a disruptive approach. It's it's very different and uh, and very exciting. Not to mention the impact on price volatility, as you mentioned before. You know, fertilizer prices are notoriously volatile, and that that has big impacts on on farmers. It's somewhat unpredictable, uh, which makes it even harder to plan. But if all you're doing is, you know, it's not dissimilar from like rooftop solar, right? Where a lot of the early adopters of rooftop solar, be they residential or commercial, they were doing so sure to see some savings maybe, but just as much so to fix their price of electricity because you plop the solar panels on your roof and your price of electricity is fixed for the whole lifetime of that system, basically. Not a dissimilar concept here, right? Where in principle, you put an electricity system on a farm the price of the fertilizer that is being produced should be static, right? It's just dependent on the electricity that you put in and the water that you put in. So that that 
must be substantial to farmers. Absolutely. You know, today a farmer could, could buy nitrogen one season and see the price double by the next season. And, uh, you know, some seasons, especially when big global events happen, it may not even be available. You know, there, there was uh, some rice farms in California that couldn't get the fertilizer they needed this year. And so not only do you, do, you, do you have a supply of it, but it's under your control and the price is fixed. All right. So let's talk about the challenges. What, what's going to make this hard to do? I mean, obviously disrupting a hundred plus billion dollar market is no easy task in general. But what are the big hurdles you think you have to jump over? Well, there, there's a big transition from getting, you know, from a, a, a technology built in a backyard to something that you can roll out, you know, a thousand units of or, or, or build bigger ones to get there. And so, so we're scaling up by, we scaled up by a factor of, you know, 10 to 20 in two consecutive stages, you know, from a, a prototype technology early on, um, first powered by, you know, I think it was my Subaru, uh, to, a, to a farm technology, a small one on a test plot powered by a solar array the size of a pickup truck, to, to one now that is sized for commercial agriculture, sized to fertilize you know, standard irrigation set size in California Central Valley. So the first cha- set of challenges are associated with building it big enough to be relevant, building it big enough to have relevant uh, emissions mitigations and to be the right size to, to f- support a meaningful amount of crops. And then the second stage, you know, once you have it the right size, which we're nearly complete with, is to scale it from, from your flagship unit, your template unit, to being able to produce many, hundreds, thousands. Um, and and that's, a, that's a scale-up problem that uh, is around the corner for us. And, uh, and the management of a, of a fleet of uh, nitrogen generators is a very interesting challenge. And, uh, and we'll be there soon. Well, I obviously... Uh for a variety of reasons and uh, confident that, that you're going to get there and that it's going to work. But let's take a step back just to maybe close out. Um, nitricity is one mechanism to decarbonize the impacts of fertilizer. It's not the only one. Um, and it's complementary with a number of others that could also play a role. So would love for you to talk a little bit, I mean, especially being a nitrogen fertilizer enthusiast, as you described yourself, what are the other pathways to you know, mitigating this five six percent of global emissions. The uh, there's there's quite a few. You know, a lot of there's a lot of talk today about the green Haber Bosch, or, or decarbonizing the current process. And I think the big fertilizer players out there should, should, should are and should continue to do this. The, these are projects that need billion dollar world scale facility finance. The, these are projects where the technology is known. We just need the political and and financing models and, and big players to get behind. And so I think, you know, Green Haber Bosch and decarbonizing these big factories is a must and, and very easy. It just needs to happen. And then, you know, but there's, there's room for innovation from, for, for startup businesses and, and high growth businesses. You know, we, you know, we're focused initially on, on farm scale production and nitrate based production. And, and that's a nice niche. Another area, which is a different side of the fertilizer market, is using biological uh, or microbes to um, you know, do the process for you in the, in the root zone for the, for the crops. And so there's companies like uh, Pivot Bio, Kula Bio, companies that use microbes and you apply it in furrow and, uh, and microbes go to the root zone of a crop and those microbes uh, attach and, and convert air and water uh, into uh, generally ammonium-based types of fertilizer right in the, right in the root zone. And those are magic. 
uh, because they're they're doing everything they should. And and you can get to 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 rope. You can get to cereals, so you can decarbonize some, not not all, but you can decarbonize some of the emissions uh, and and fertilizer used for the big items like corn and wheat. And then uh, and beyond that, I, I really want to emphasize that just improving you know, practices. You know, if if we can improve fertilizer practices uh, across the world, that would have an immediate nitrous oxide emissions reduction. And so, you know, you can have innovative technologies, um, but to balance that, we also need to have innovative policies and uh, educational and and farm resources available to help farmers choose which ion, which frequency, what concentration of fertilizer to apply to help reduce some of these field-based emissions. That, I guess, gets to my final question for you, which is um, the role of policy and regulation here. I think the the world seems to be waking up to the impact of fertilizer on global greenhouse gas emissions. And I think more recently in particular, waking up to the nitrous oxide challenge, which is which is big and sort of understudied and underappreciated, but is becoming clearer. What do you see as being the pathways for government to step in and play a role, to your point, not to hurt farmers in the process, but to provide a pathway to supporting decarbonization? That's a, that's a great question. Policy is going to be a, a major point of this. And it's, you know, there's, you, it can cover every aspect of the market. I think one thing is helping the big players decarbonize the large factories. Um, and then, and then, you know, helping reduce safety hazards in the shipping of fertilizer um, is another big one. But, you know, to, to your point on the field, how do we target uh, nitrous oxide emissions, um, it's got to be the same way that we're targeting nitrate runoff today. You know, we, we just need the public to be aware of it. We need policymakers to start implementing um, not big steps. We, we need little steps towards nitrous oxide emissions. Uh, but, but most importantly, we need farmer buy-in. I think, you know, we need these, these solutions to be proposed by the communities that will have to implement the, 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 the new approaches. So, I, you know, I, I think that you know, for, for policymakers to get out to, to the agricultural regions and ask farmers about these emissions and, you know, how, how they might, uh, their recommendations on how to reduce it. And, and I, I bet it'll come down to increasing the frequency of application and uh, helping reduce the price of, of the correct ion for the soil in those regions. That will have a major impact. Nico, thank you so much for doing this. Yes, thank you for having me. Nico Pinkowski is the CEO and co-founder of Nitricity. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Dalvin Abouaji and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange.